chapter 6. We'll read the first 11 verses. And he begins with a question. And Paul writes these words, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now in previous places he said where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So should we continue in sin that we might know more grace? And he answers, By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are living in some interesting days in the context of the church. In the 1940s, 50s, up to the 60s, we were, at least in the United States of America, we're still enjoying very much a Christian culture. And so what I meant by that is that um, if you were in the community, to be, have standing in the community, to have influence in the community, it probably meant that you needed to be connected to a church, and so churches enjoyed uh, good attendance, faithful attendance, and good offerings, and the rest. But as we moved into the, the through the 70s and into the 80s, we, we began to see the early signs of the cultural Christianity decline, and it no longer was important anymore to your social standing to be connected to the church. And we saw a rise of secularism, and with the rise of secularism, the rise of celebrating all kinds of wickedness. And early on, almost from the very beginning, there was this, this push against the church that if you will accommodate, if you will, if you will give in to these things, you can continue to have your influence in the community, you can continue to have your good attendance, you can continue to have your good offerings, but you are going to have to give up on some of these moral standards, some of these issues of sin that you've been holding to if you want to continue those things. And the honest truth is that there were many churches, whole denominations that bought that promise. Now, fast forward to 2022. We're living in a day where the collapse of cultural Christianity is almost complete. 
Um, there's no sense at all today if you want to be in uh, the local government or the highest office uh, of government that you need to tell anybody or claim any connection to a church. In fact, it probably will help you these days, if you, particularly in national office, if you don't have any connection to a church. Or at least if you're going to be connected to a church, make sure you're connected to one that has absolutely no theological foundation at all. And we're living in a day where that promise of you can continue with influence and attendance and money if you'll just give in to the cultural pressure has also proven to be a lie. Which, by the way, I think is a great gift to the church. Because where we are today, friends, is we are at a decision moment. You no longer can ride the fence. Those days have passed. Today, the question is very much out in front. Will you give in to the culture and social pressure to celebrate wickedness, or will you stand on the Word of God? And we are seeing in these days, particularly in institutions that have historically been Christian, we are seeing these days some stand and some fall. Some that we thought would never fall, but they're hoping to be, be accepted by the world while maintaining and keeping their organization. Now, I want to make a case to you. I don't think any church that is going to be a faithful church to the gospel of Jesus can give in to the wickedness of the world. I think if you give in to the wickedness of the world, you have abdicated your reason to exist that you have abdicated your calling and your purpose and you cease to be a church of the living Christ. But even more specifically, if you are a follower of Jesus and you've been transformed by the blood of Jesus, it's not a question, it's an absolute. You cannot give in to the wickedness of this world. And the reason why I say this is chapter 6 of Romans. So, so, so there's a theological question that's happening here. And, 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 and it's a legitimate question. So Paul has said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So what he means by there's just a practical reality. So if your testimony is that you grew up in church, praise God for that. Never diminish your testimony if your mom and dad, by the grace of God, um, raised you up in the church. Praise God for that. And let's just say, because you grew up in the church, you heard the gospel from an early age, and you got saved as an early age. Don't ever diminish that testimony, friends. That is an act of God's good grace in your life, that you avoided all kinds of brokenness and sin because the gospel came into your life early. Always be thankful for that. And so let's just say you came to know Jesus early in your life, and by, 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 by honesty's sake, you have, for the most part of your life, walked faithfully with the Lord. Now, the reality of it is, there's not, there's, not some, there's not some ugly parts in your life. So you hadn't bar hopped, you hadn't, you don't, you hadn't married and, and divorced, and married and divorced, you hadn't married and divorced, you hadn't had affairs, and all those sort of things. You don't have that story in your life. But maybe sitting next to you in your pew is somebody who came to know Jesus late in life. Maybe as a 45-year-old, 47-year-old, 50-year-old, they came to know Jesus late in life. And so if they tell you about their story early in their life, they've got some things that are pretty messed up. They've got some marriages and divorces and some adultery and some, some all kinds of stuff that's just wickedness that was part of their life prior to knowing Jesus. We are so thankful that God led them to Jesus, but the reality is their story has a lot more rough road than yours does. Now, here's the honest truth. Where their sin abounded, so did God's grace abound. Praise God for that, right? You're both saved by the grace of God. They have known more grace than you because they also knew more sin than you. So then the question has to be, well, 
if, if, there's, if you receive more grace when you live more sin, should we not then embrace sin that we also might embrace the grace of God? Now, that only makes sense if you're approaching the gospel not from one who's been saved perspective, but from one who is still lost perspective. And Paul answers that question, and he says, absolutely not. And then he goes on to explain why he says it's not. And his explanation, here's the sermon in a nutshell, is that's ridiculous because one who's been saved would never ask that question. One who's been saved by grace would never desire to have more sin, therefore more grace. Because they understand the cost of that grace, the glory of that grace, and, they, and because of that, they have died to the love of sin. So I want to talk about what it means to be dead to sin. That's what we put away in our life, and what it means to be alive in Christ this morning. And I want to begin with this basic um, testimony that Paul lays out that we must, those of you who have been saved, are by definition dead to sin. In other words, when you are saved, it transforms. It transforms who you are. In other words, grace does not ever in your life produce more sin because grace never ever has union or fellowship with wickedness. So the point that Paul, the point of Paul's question and answer in verses 1 and 2 is that grace and wickedness don't go together. Grace and wickedness have no fellowship. Grace and wickedness have no union. You cannot both receive the grace of God and still rejoice in the sin that that grace recovered. That the grace covered. Those who receive the teaching of more sin equals more grace as, an, as encouragement to sin more, Paul is saying, you've not experienced the real grace of God. Because if you've experienced the great grace of God, it does not produce in you a desire for more sin. It, re- it produces in you a rejoicing for the grace that you've received. To know God's grace is to experience the goodness of God and by contrast, the brokenness of sin. Imagine with me, you've spent your whole life legally blind. You can't see. And so your, your legs, your arms are always bruised up because you're broke, um, banging into things. It's just the way life is. But you have a good friend, and your good friend says, hey, I, I, I can take you to the doctor. They can give you glasses, and you can see. And so you go to the, they go to the doctor, and, and, they, and they prescribe glasses for you, and you put them on your head, and for the first time in your life, what was fuzzy and, un, and, and unclear becomes clear and crisp, and you can see where you're going. Now, the response of one who has been blind but who now can see is not to go, oh, now I can bump into more things. Now I can really drive the corner of the coffee table into my thigh. Now I can really mess up my shins by, by, hitting the, um, by, by hitting that trailer hitch on the back of the truck, right? Now I can really move into all those injuries. No, what you will rejoice in is now I am set free from all of those injuries. That's the point here is that when you receive the grace of God, it doesn't produce in you a desire for more sin. It produces you in a joy for the grace, but a, but a hatred for the sin that was in your life. To know the grace of God changes your heart's desire from desiring sin to desiring the righteousness of God. You see, salvation by its very definition is transformational. Paul uses the imagery in this passage of death, 
burial, and resurrection that is testified through the, the baptism to, uh, to demonstrate the transformation that comes through salvation. So when you were saved, and if it was me or your, or your pastor baptized you, you may not have heard this because they were dunking you underwater, but they said to you, because you believed on Jesus Christ, I bury you with Christ in baptism. That's about the time they're dunking you underwater. And then they say, I raise you to the newness of life. Where do we get that language? We, we get that language right out of this passage. It, it, look in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The, the testimony of baptism is the testimony of your salvation, that who you were before salvation is dead. What do you do with dead things? You bury them. Like Christ was put in the grave, we bury dead bodies, but Christ did not stay in the grave. He was transformed into the glorified body, rising again. And all those who believe in Jesus likewise are raised to life in the newness of life, presently, spiritually, and in the coming days, physically as well. Salvation transforms who you are. Listen to me carefully on this. Salvation is not something that is just something you put on. Salvation is not like a coat that you can put on and take off. It's not external. Salvation doesn't add to what you are. Salvation changes who you are. Do you hear me? Very carefully on this. If you are saved today, you didn't just add on a layer of protection for eternity. It's not like buying a life insurance. It's not just something that you can put on when you're here at church, but take off when you go to work. No, salvation changes who you are forever and ever and ever. Some will consider wrongly salvation as something that they just add to their life, like a, a license or a permission slip. You'll hear them talk about it. I mean, you don't hear as much anymore, but the, the two phrases that I often hear that kind of testify to this is they'll say, well, I got my fire insurance. That's not transformational language. Or, and I know what they're saying with this, but it just irks me because it's oftentimes said as an excuse for sin. They'll say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Now, dear friends, if you're saved at all, you are a sinner saved by grace. But oftentimes that phrase is used as a pretext, as an excuse for continuing in sin. To be transformed is not external, it is internal. To be transformed is to be completely and totally tra changed. Transformation is not permission to do something, it is to change uh, who you are to be something else. Salvation changes who you are, and therefore there is no going back. Once you've been transformed by the gospel, there's no way you can go back to your former way. That's what Paul's getting at here. So if, you've been, if you're dead to sin and you've been buried with Christ, how then can you go back to that former nature? Those who've been truly transformed do not go back to their former way. Like the caterpillar transforming to the butterfly, butterflies never go back to being caterpillars. Once a child is transformed to an adult, they don't go back to childhood. Once a prisoner is set free, they don't go back to being behind bars willingly. Prior to salvation, all lived a life enslaved by sin. But through salvation, there is freedom and transformation. Thus, one of the indicators of your salvation is not returning to the former way of life. Those who've been resurrected from the dead do not return to the grave. Now, maybe this is a little gross. 
but I think it's helpful to understand. Let's say you died, and we had a nice funeral for you. Your family bought you a nice casket. But before we buried you, by God's grace, he resurrected you from the dead. Now, first of all, that'd be a pretty big day. But that night, after you had rejoiced being with your family and the, the funeral meal that we had provided for your family turned into a great party and we celebrated God raising you from the dead, when you got ready to go to bed that night, would you then crawl back into that very nice casket that your family bought you? Now, I've looked into a lot of caskets. There's pillows in there. They look like they're padded. It may be comfortable. I don't know. Never laid in one. But I have a pretty safe assumption that not a single one of you, if you've been raised from the dead, is crawling back in the casket. Somebody say amen. Because living people don't lay down in dead things. That's what Paul's getting at here, dear friends. If you've been transformed by the gospel, you put away dead things. You live as one who's been transformed. Now, then he uses this imagery of being set free. So listen to what he says. For in verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. In other words, the transformation of the gospel not only changes who you are from dead to life, but also transforms who you are from free, from, from, from enslaved to free, that you have become free from sin. Friends, at the cross, Jesus purchased your freedom. Jesus' death on the cross was the price paid to purchase your freedom from the enslavement of sin. Listen to me very carefully here. When we preach the gospel and the forgiveness of the blood of Jesus, it is not that God forgot about your sin. It is not that God has ignored your sin. It is not that God will overlook your sin. And it's certainly not that God does not care about your sin. At the judgment of God that is coming and all will be judged, it is not that if you've been saved and you stand before the judgment seat of God, God just goes, well, it's all right, don't you worry about it. No, your sin has been accounted for. Your sin has been redeemed. Your sin has been paid for. And it was paid for by the death of the perfect Lamb of God on the cross for you and for me. The gospel is that Jesus has redeemed us from the consequence of our sin. The Old Testament teaches that sin requires a blood sacrifice. That's why when you read the Old Testament, they're constantly sacrificing animals for the redemption of sin. But those sacrifices were temporary. But Paul says here, if you look in verse 10, that the death of Jesus was once for all. He says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In other words, that's a once and all, once for all death that covers over a multitude of sin. God's wrath is over sin. And that wrath was satisfied at the cross. The payment for our sin was made at the cross. The penalty of sin was satisfied at the cross. In sin, you were slaves to sin. But through the cross, Jesus set you free from that sin that you might live for him. That's why Paul says that in grace, 
You have been set free to be instruments of righteousness. Look in verse 13. This is beyond the passage that we read this morning, but he says, Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, the reason why he calls Christians to do that is because only Christians can do that because of what the cross has done for us. To be enslaved to sin means that your body, your mind, your life is controlled and used for sin. But by the grace of God that flows through the cross and is received through faith that transforms you to being alive in righteousness, it sets you free from your former way and sets you free to a new way of righteousness before the living God. In sin, you are slaves to sin, but in grace, you are free to obey God. In sin, you are enslaved to obey your lust, but in grace, you glorify God. Grace sets you free to be used for God for His glory and for your, your blessing. Paul, asking and answering the question, shall we sin more that we might know more grace? May it never be. Recognizes that holiness, personal holiness, it's the testifying response to those who have known grace. If, you're, if your sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus, you've been set free from that sin by the power of Jesus, the response of one who's known that amount of grace is a response of holiness. To understand this passage requires more than just an academic ability to understand death and resurrection, those sort of things. To understand this passage requires you experience grace. Now, this is why I say this is for believers. Because if you don't know Jesus today and you hear a preacher preach about being holy and rejecting sin, what your ears will hear is legalism. What you will hear if you don't know Jesus is, well, they're just telling me what I ought to not do and what I ought to do. You'll hear words that, are, that sound like I'm encouraging you to try harder to be something but if you've been filled with the Spirit of the living God, then what you understand is this is not about you trying to win something or earn something. This is about you reflecting what God has already done in your life. Oh, friends, when you've known the grace of God to cover over the wicked vileness of your sin, the reaction to that, the natural reaction to that is to live holy before God, to give everything you have to the glory of God. The more grace given, the more love for the cross. The more grace given, the more humbled by the blood of Jesus. The more grace given, the more joy in living holy before a holy God. Now, there's one other thing I want you to see, and this is just sort of foundational to understanding the whole thing, and that is that when we think about what it means to live holy before God, and we think about what it means to live free to righteousness, understand this is a work of God in our life, and it really functions in three ways. Now, the first we find very clearly in this passage, and that is, is that the grace of God begins at the cross. 
So if you're to know the grace of Jesus, it is only through the cross. And so as you read through this, it's all about Jesus dying for us and what he did for us through the cross and, and understanding that grace comes only through the cross. Salvation is foundationally a work of Jesus. Jesus, uh, we are baptized into Jesus. We are baptized into his death. We are crucified with him. Paul says we die with Christ and we are alive with him. All of those phrases are articulating the reality that the work of, of salvation is a work of God through us. Paul's not making a case for what we have or could do. He's making a case for what Jesus has already done. Dear friends, if you are to be saved today, there has nothing to do with what you can do or might do. It has everything to do with what Jesus has already done. He's already died. He's already been buried. He's already been raised again. And the offer of salvation is present because of the work that he has done on the cross. Friends, there is no forgiveness of sin without the cross. There's no eternal life without the cross. There's no hope of heaven without the cross. The grace of God was poured out for us through the cross of Jesus. I had an experience a couple of weeks ago. I was, I was in a situation where me and another person that I had never met before were we're forced to be together in a, in a confined space. And uh, so I thought this was a great opportunity to share the gospel. So I began to ask them if they knew Jesus, and they were not very interested in having that conversation. But to try to shut down the conversation, they, they told me, and I'm not even sure this is true, but they told me, no, they, they didn't believe in the gospel, but they were a practicer, uh, or they were practicing a, um, an ancient pagan religion. This is right here in South Georgia, friends. I'm not talking about when I was in New York or California. Right here in South Georgia. They were a practicer of an ancient pagan religion. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know this. They had rejected Jesus. And, and the, the conversation ended with these words. I said to them, friend, all I can tell you is the only hope you have is in Jesus. Religion offers no hope, ancient or otherwise. The only hope is in Jesus because only Jesus has died for your sins. Only Jesus was put in the grave dead and rose again on the third day. Only Jesus offers the hope that those who believe in him live in him. Friends, the work of God began at the cross of Jesus. But it continues today. So grace continues through the work of sanctification. So no, look at what he says in verse 10. Jesus died to sin, but he lives to God. So died past tense, lived present tense. So in verse 10 it says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives continuing to live, he lives to God. This is the call to those who are in the grace of Jesus. The cross sets you free from sin so that you may actively, continually, eternally live to God. 
The grace of God did not stop at the cross, but it continues to flow through each life that has been saved daily and through the work of sanctification. In other words, once you've known the grace of Jesus through salvation that began at the cross, you continue to know the grace of Jesus every day as you live for and to Christ. Somebody say amen. The work of sanctification is the work that God continues in us to make us more like Him, to develop a life of righteousness, to use you for His kingdom. Where salvation is not something that you put on and take off, neither is grace not an event but a saturating part of every believer's life. Those who don't know Jesus will look at you and they might say, well, you can talk about grace and you can talk about salvation, but that's just your opinion. It's just sort of things that you think are important. And we need to be very quick to say, no, dear friends, I've known the grace of God and it saturates every part of my life. Began at the cross. It continues every day and it will be fulfilled in the eternal uh, life with Jesus when he returns and brings us to himself. Now, that's not directly dealt with here, but, but Paul will speak to this and later in this chapter in verse 23 where he will say these words, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace was demonstrated through the cross. We experience grace every day through the work of sanctification, but grace will be fully known in eternal life. Friends, we ought not to think of heaven as something that has no connection with our present day. We must think about heaven as the complete, perfect fulfillment of what God has begun the moment we were saved. The Bible says he will be faithful to complete the good work that he began in us. The good work is salvation. But complete is the, the, the fullness of the promise that comes when Jesus returns. In heaven, every Christian will know perfectly what it means to live righteously. Meaning, in heaven, dear friends, we will know what it means to live a life that is no longer marred by sin. That's a good word. We will know perfectly what it means, the grace of God. We will know perfectly what it means to enjoy the presence of God. We will know perfectly what it means to be free from sin and experiencing the everlasting grace of God. These things will be known perfectly in heaven, but we need to be very clear they have already begun here. This is why I say we ought not to think about heaven as something disconnected from the present. Here's the connection. What we will know in heaven being completely free from sin, living lives totally through the grace of God and the righteousness of God. That began. It doesn't begin when Jesus comes back. That began the moment you confess Jesus in faith. Praise God for that. And from the moment you confessed Jesus in faith, God filled, with you, he filled you with his spirit, began to sanctify you for his name's sake, and has continually been completing that work in your life, the fullness of which we will know in heaven. But we're knowing that more and more and more presently. Heaven is not something that will come one day but disconnected from today. Heaven is something that is the fulfillment that was begun on the day you confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Dear friends, if you 
have been filled with the grace of God. Can you have any part of sin in your life? And the answer to that is absolutely no. Love the glory of God. Love the freedom of righteousness. Love the grace of God. And hate the sin that was part of your former nature. One of the most influential leaders in America was a man by the name of Frederick Douglass. He's best known for his writing and his work for the abolition, abolition of slavery. Douglass began his life as a slave in Maryland. He was taken from his mother as an infant. He spent many, uh, the early years of his life eating nothing but runny cornmeal that was dumped in a trough like you would feed hogs. He worked in the field before sunup, from sunup to sundown. He was whipped countless times until blood ran down his back. He was almost killed once by being attacked by, with a spike by a gang of men. The thing that struck me about Douglas's writing is he would eventually run away and run and 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 and, and run to a, a free state so that he would be free from the wickedness of slavery. But he writes about that experience that he almost did not run away. He almost stayed in the awful experience of slavery. Listen to what he says. He says, I had a number of warm-hearted friends in Baltimore, friends that I loved almost as I did in my life, and the thought of being separated from them forever was painful beyond expression. It is my opinion that thousands would escape from slavery who now remain, but for the strong cords of affection that, that bind them to his friends. Then friends. In other words, he said, I had dear friends that I knew if I ran away, I would never see them again. And he also said, he said, I, he, he was horribly afraid that if he failed in his attempt, his case would be a hopeless one and it would seal his fate as a slave forever. Now, we cannot truly identify that, but I think you, we can appreciate the intensity of those emotions that were part of his process of thinking through the danger of escaping slavery. Douglas did escape, and he did make it to um, freedom. September the 3rd, 1838, he remembers, I left my chains and succeeded in reaching New York without the slightest uh, interruption of any kind. I have been frequently asked how I felt when I found myself in a free state. It was a moment of the highest excitement I ever experienced. I felt like one who had escaped a den of hungry lions. Now, you may not be able to identify with what it was like for him to fear leaving slavery, but you can identify in this. I suspect there was never a moment in Frederick Douglass's life once he gained his freedom that he ever woke up on a morning and said, you know what I think I'd like to do today? I think I'd like to go back and eat some runny cornmeal. You know, I really miss the beatings that I used to get. I miss the horrible labor situations and the terrible living conditions. I really think, I think I'm going to go back to slavery because, oh, wasn't that a wonderful time we had back in slavery? 
know, I think you understand that once he got his freedom, he never looked back to those days with fondness, but rather rejoiced in the fact that he was a freeman. Dear friends, once you've been set free from the slavery of sin, once you've been set free from the condemnation of sin, those who've been truly set free never look back on those days with fondness, only joy that they're free from them. What part does a believer have with sin? None. Should we sin more that we might know grace more? May it never be. For if you have been transformed by the glory of God and salvation, you by definition are dead to sin. Let it be. Bury it in the ground, put it away, and reach for the glory of God. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.